Thanks for joining us for today's message. We are always so encouraged to hear how God is working through this ministry to change lives. If you have a story to share about how God has worked in your life, then let us know by sending us an email to mystory@timberlakechurch.com. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so by giving online at timberlakechurch.com give. Enjoy the message. Guys, it is good to see you. Are you awake today? Well, guys, I want to welcome our campuses. And so for all of the different campuses around the Seattle area and the Redmond area and the Issaquah area, I just want to say hello to you, to uh, the Timberlake campuses. You probably started in different parts of the world by now. It just seems like every time I'm here, another campus being added. And I was actually trying to think, when was the last time I was at Timberlake? And it hit me, it was this past summer uh, when I was bailing Pastor Ben out of jail. So it is good to be here on a drama-free weekend. Now, a couple weeks ago, uh, we launched a series called A Better Us. And so this is a series, just quite frankly, about uh, love and about marriage and dating and romantic relationships. But I just want to tell you, if you are not in a romantic relationship, maybe you say, I never even have any desire to be in a romantic relationship. That's totally fine. Uh, but I promise you, the stuff we're going to talk about today is stuff you can apply to your everyday life and in different relationships even parenting relationships, uh, sibling relationship, works relationships, the relationships you have in your life. That being said, I do love talking about romantic relationships. I really do. I've been married to my wife, Rindy, for 23 years. Yeah. She's actually with us at Timberlake this weekend, and so it's always fun for my wife uh, to be with me when I uh, have the opportunity to be here. But I'm just going to tell you this, and I'm not saying this out of false humility and to be really dramatic and showy, but because I've been married 23 years, I'm like most of you, I actually don't feel very qualified to talk on relationships. Because I think about all the struggles, I think about all the difficulties and challenges we've had over those 23 years. In fact, a couple years ago, uh, I had the opportunity to speak at a marriage conference, and after agreeing to speak, they asked me to send in my bio. Now, I got to tell you that I panicked when they asked me to send in my bio because I didn't have a bio, and I'm not really good at writing that stuff, and I feel like it can be a little self-promoting, so I didn't know what to say. And so I asked, well, what are the other people writing about themselves? And so they sent me a link with all the bios, and I, I knew right away, I'm out of my league. People had written books and written songs and received awards. And so I just put something together and sent it to them, and they honored me by using that as my bio. Here's, here's what I put. I said, Dave is the lead and founding pastor of Great Lakes Church, located in the tropical paradise of southeast Wisconsin. Dave's never starred in a movie or received a Nobel Prize. He has, however, officiated 150-plus weddings and has been married to his wife, Randy, at that time for 21 years. Also, Dave's style of communication is raw to the point and filled with the many learnings he's been able to pick up from marriage counseling sessions he and his wife have had to pay for. <laughs> so there you go. That is my qualification. I am going to regurgitate stuff that I have had to pay for. I'm giving it to you for free. You are welcome. <laughs> now, 3,000 years ago, King Solomon of Israel writes this. He says, two people are better off than one for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can spoon, I'm sorry, can keep each other warm. But how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. 
Now, I think it's important before I say anything else to say when Solomon wrote this, he isn't dissing on those who are single. Right? All throughout the scripture, we see uh, many men and women of God used by God who are single. John the Baptist was single. Jeremiah the prophet was single. Paul the apostle single. Jesus was single. Every couple of years, Taylor Swift is single. There's nothing wrong with being single. But when Solomon writes to are better than one. What he's saying is that generally speaking in life, it's better to do life with another person than it is to do it alone. Two perspectives are often better than just one perspective. You can find strength and support and encouragement in another person. Now some of you are old enough to remember when the Chicago Bulls were on top of the world. This was 25, 30 years ago, right? This was when Michael Jordan was large and in charge. And it was during that period of Bulls being on top of the world that there was a game between the Chicago Bulls and the Cavs that is kind of marked in history. It happened in March of 1990. Some of you will remember this. The reason it was such a big game, an important game, is it was the night, that was the game that Michael Jordan scored his, uh, his, um, his career high of 69 points. It was a big deal for him. The very same night, rookie Stacy King scored a free throw, a single point. That was his contribution to the team. And so afterwards, there's so much hype, there's so much excitement in the locker room, and a reporter walks up to Stacy and says, Stacy, give me your take on the game. And Stacy, without missing a beat, says, I will always remember today, this evening, as the night that Michael, Jordan, and I teamed up for a combined 70 points. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Now, if you remember that game, which I'm guessing most of us don't remember that game, but here's, here's what's so significant about this. Even though he was joking and, and making a lighthearted statement, somewhere in the middle of that game, he made that free throw, and it mattered because when the final buzzer went off, the score was tied. Without that free throw, they would have lost. So the score was tied, it went into overtime, and the Bulls ended up winning. It takes two people to make a team. It takes two people to make us. But it's not easy to make us. It's not easy to take two very different individuals with two very different upbringings, two different demographics, two different ways of thinking, two different maybe uh, ways of being educated when they were growing up, maybe different political views, and then trying to blend them into one person. Which is why I love this tweet that someone put out on marriage. They said, marriage is like an ongoing tennis match between I love you so much and nobody would find your body. My plan is well thought out. Isn't that awesome? Theologian. Chris Rock says, if you haven't contemplated murder, you ain't been in love. (laughs) Marriage and relationships, they're fun to talk about. They're interesting to talk about. And quite honestly, they're a very fascinating topic. And the reason I say that is because regardless of the statistics and regardless of the horror stories and regardless of the heartache and the challenges that so many people who are in long-term relationships will talk about, it still happens. Like every single summer and certainly in the fall and spring, really all throughout the year, there are couples that will go to the beach and they'll hold hands and stare at each other's eyes for engagement photos, right? They'll still register for matching bath towels. They'll still stand in front of of family and friends and exchange rings and exchange vows and promise to be with each other till death do us part. And then they party and listen to 80s cover bands all night long. I mean, it is a big, big deal. In fact, this weekend, while I've been in Seattle, I married a couple. I officiated their wedding. And it's so interesting because why do we keep doing this, right? 
Why do we continue torturing ourselves with what is seemingly a very outdated custom that shackles people together with the promise that we're going to be together until one of us is standing over the grave of the other person? If we're honest, monogamy doesn't even seem realistic in 2019. There isn't another institution, there isn't another arrangement that has consistently caused so much agony and so much heartache as giving yourself to another person only to have it collapse and fall apart. So why do we do it? Now we could debate this for others, we could have conversations, we could get around in a circle and talk about it and it'd be days. But I think we could all agree it's, it's always going to come back to a simple little word called love. But I love them, and they love me. You can't escape this word called love. And typically in a talk like this, I would have people shout out words of how they would define love. When they picture someone who's been together for 25 years or 40 years or 60 years, how would you define love? The answers are always the same. Well, it's, it's forgiveness. It's compassion. It's mercy. It's gentleness. It's kindness. All the words that are shouted out seem to be the same in every environment that I ask people to shout out how they would define love. What comes to their mind? And what's so interesting is the words that are shouted out are non-emotional words. Yet, we define love in non-emotional words, but when we talk about love from a personal perspective, we always talk about it with such emotion. I'm not in love with you anymore. I don't feel close to you anymore. Right? We'll just watch a young couple who's been dating for you know, a couple of weeks or even a couple of months. Right? It's like, I'm so in love. Right? We can just talk for hours on hours on end. We never run out of stuff to say. I can't keep my mind off of him. He can't keep his mind or other things off of me. I mean, there is just something about us. We are so in love. I've never felt this way about anyone before. And so when we define love, we use non-emotional terms. But when we talk about love, we talk about it in emotional terms. And the reason this is so important, and the reason this is such a big deal, is because if we define love in non-emotional terms, which we should, then it comes back to this idea that love is a choice. Love is a choice. It is a choice to serve another person. It is a choice to be selfless. It is a choice to forgive. It is a choice to be kind. It is a choice to apologize. It is a choice to show compassion. Love is a choice. It is something you have to decide. And that's good news for all of us, but especially for those who might be going through a very difficult time in your relationship. Because if love is a choice, here's what that means. It means you can't just fall out of love. You can choose to stop showing love. Your partner can stop show, uh, choose to stop showing love. And that will certainly affect the environment. It will affect your emotions, but you can't just fall out of love. Now, you know what taught me this? It wasn't anything I read in the Bible. It wasn't the great teachings of Jesus. What taught me this was The Bachelor. All right, now, if you tell me I've never seen The Bachelor, I think you're lying. But for those who maybe the two or three in the room that maybe haven't seen it, here's what you have. You have a young, chiseled man Looks a lot like Pastor Ben, right? And he is surrounded by 28, 30, 32 women. And over the course of like six weeks, they are in a paradise type of setting together. And this guy will take 
these women individually on exotic dates to romantic locations like Red Robin, and they will get meals together, and then they'll take helicopter rides to these different locations in, on the planet, and they'll land, and you too will be singing songs, and they are so, there's so many emotions. I could fall in love with my sister in, on The Bachelor. I'm just convinced of it, Right? And so what happens over the course of six weeks is this bachelor is forced into a decision of choosing one of these women. And he gets down to like two women and he's got a hand of rose to one of them. And it's so emotional and overwhelming. He's wiping tears. I wish I could take both of you, but I can only choose one. And so he hands out that rose and, and they feel so in love. And they're like, man, we're going to live happily ever after. But what happens then is they go back home and the environment changes. And when the environment changes, their emotions are affected. Now they're back to work. Now they're having to deal with real conflict. And so I looked up all the current stats of the couples who've ever hooked up on The Bachelor or Bachelorette, a combined 37 seasons, and just eight couples are still together. So don't miss this. You can create an environment in your relationship, an environment filled with emotion. You can create an environment with lighting and spending enough money going to places you can create an environment in your marriage. And, and there actually is nothing wrong with that. I think we should work on that. But the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 talks about a different type of environment we can set. And that also will affect our emotions. Here's what Paul writes. And I'm guessing you've had this read at your wedding or heard it read at different weddings. He says, love is patient and kind. It's not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable and keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Love is a choice. In fact, the only emotions the Apostle Paul references in that section of verses are the ones standing in opposition to love, jealousy and pride and feeling irritated. And we need to be reminded of this because what happens when we get married, and this is true for all of us, we start out with big cheesy smiles and we make these really big promises to one another. And then after the ceremony, we have to spend the next 30 years trying to live up to the promises we made in the first 30 minutes. And anyone who's been married for more than a couple of years will tell you that's not easy to do, right? It's easy to fall in love, but staying in love is hard work. Staying in love over the distance, over the long haul, is a challenge. And there's several reasons that it's a challenge. But let me just tell you very candidly, the single biggest threat to any relationship, I don't care if you've been married for two months, two years, 22 years, or 102 years, which would be pretty incredible. The greatest threat to any relationship is not what you think. Okay, it's not being married to a Raiders fan. It's not infidelity. It's not financial pressure. It's not abuse or dishonesty. The single biggest threat to any relationship is this. It's this little word called drift. Drift is what happens when the stress of life and the busyness of life and the ongoing demands and the daily routines slowly carry us in a direction we never intended to go. Drift is what happens when our relationship gets off course. It's what happens when we're not paying attention and we stop being intentional. So when you're driving, when you stop paying attention, what happens? You start to drift. And often you don't notice until you've crossed the line or you're about to hit another car. Organizations and companies across the world, when they start to drift, they often don't even notice it's happening until it's too late, 
until their brand starts losing its reputation. Until they start losing customers and they say, what's happening? They realize we've drifted, right? Every year on the news, multiple times, we'll see uh, stories about swimmers or about boats that were out on the water and without even realizing it, they drifted and got themselves into dangerous uh, territory. In fact, last year, there was a teenager from Indonesia who uh, was on a wooden raft with a hut on it. And without even realizing it, that wooden raft with a hut drifted out to sea, and he was lost for 49 days. 49 days before anybody discovered him. Shockingly, he was still alive, and his story of survival was pretty miraculous in and of itself. But 49 days, and in the interviews, they'll tell you, I didn't intend to go get lost at sea. It just happened. And that story repeats itself over and over and over in our lives and on our relationships. And the reason it's so common and the reason it's so easy to drift is because drifting requires no effort. You don't have to work at it. You don't have to put any energy into it. You don't have to do anything at all. It just happens. And often you don't even notice. But what happens eventually is if you drift for too long, you will notice. And that's when panic sets in. And that's when the marriage is in a bad place and you think, man, it's too late. I don't think this marriage can be rescued. And because it's so difficult to recognize when drift is happening, I just want to give us my best way of helping us understand the pulse of our relationship. So if you're like, well, how do we know if we're drifting, if it's hard to even notice, what's the pulse that we need to be looking for? Here it is. The greatest indicator of relationship drift is a lack of connection. It's when you admit, man, there's, there's something that I'm not feeling that's right between us. We're not laughing together. We're not making memories together. There's no adventure happening in our relationship, which I will just take a quick time out and say, not every day, not every week, and not every month is going to be fantasy land. Not every day in your relationship is going to feel like the bachelor or bachelorette. That's just reality, right? But over time, when you say, man, it's been a while since we've created a memory together. It's been a while since we've done something together. There's a lack of connection. That's how you know relationship drift is happening. And the good news is, if your relationship has drifted and you're feeling very separated in your heart right now from your significant other, you can put down some anchors. If you say, well, actually, we're in a good season, we're feeling tight, you can put down some anchors to make sure you don't ever get to the place where you've drifted so far that now there's this gap between you and your spouse. So here we go. Let's talk about these anchors. I'm going to spend the most time on this first one. Anchor number one is emotional connection. Feeling connected emotionally. Now, this almost seems in opposition to what I was just talking about. Because emotions are not the foundation for our relationship, but admittedly, we all need to feel some sort of connection. We need to feel something in our relationship. We need to feel trust. We need to feel valued. We need to feel appreciated. We need to feel wanted and desired. We need to feel respected. We need to know that we can be vulnerable and open and not be judged by the person we're in a relationship with. We all if we're in a relationship, want to feel like we know our partner and our partner knows us. And just because you knew, and this, we all need to be reminded of this, just because you knew your spouse 30 years ago at a deep level doesn't mean that you still know them today at a deep level because we change as human beings. 
I just wrote down some of the things that changes. The birth of a baby, the death of a loved one, the diagnosis of an illness, finding a job, being promoted, losing a job, being demoted, weight gain, weight loss, financial increase, financial decrease, moving, depression, disagreements, children, teenagers, aging bodies, single parents. Over time, the transition uh, and changes we go through in life are endless. And every one of the changes, or every one of those changes shape who we become. Now think about this. If that's true, that life is constantly changing us, that means that the person we're married to is different than the person we exchanged vows with however many years ago. I like to tell couples this as they're about to exchange vows. I say, you're about to make promises to this person you've fallen in love with, but here's the crazy thing, guys. You're also making promises to the person they're gonna be in 10 years from now, and they may not be the same person. And you're making a commitment to who they're gonna be 30 years from now as life changes them. And because life changes me and it changes my wife, we have to work at staying emotionally connected so we don't unintentionally drift. And and there's different ways to do this. I'm going to focus on what I believe is probably the best way or one of the most important ways we can stay emotionally connected. But before I do that, I want to hit one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I use it on so many different topics. It was written by the Apostle Paul in the first century. Here's what he writes. He said, and so let's not get tired of doing what is good. Let's not get tired of showing love. Let's not get tired of making the choice to forgive or to apologize. Let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. If we consistently make the choice to show love over time, most likely, more often than not, there will be an emotional closeness. Now you need to hear this. The flip side of emotional closeness and emotional connection is not anger. It's not bitterness, it's not resentment. The flip side of emotional connection is actually just the absence of emotion. This is the reason drift is such a dangerous thing. Most of the time, like I said, we don't even realize it's happening until it's too late. And then we realize, well, we haven't been laughing together. We haven't been sharing time together and we haven't been learning about each other in new ways. We haven't studied and been a student of our spouse. We haven't expressed affection to each other. But we're not angry and we're not bitter and we're not ticked off all the time. We just, we get indifferent and we're void of emotion. And this is where so many couples end up. We can't stop being a student of our spouse. The Apostle Paul, he writes this. He says, don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Be a student of your spouse. I love that in week one, Pastor Ben went through the Enneagram and talked about the different personality types because one of the greatest things we can do to keep emotional connection is to know who we are and know who our spouse is and try to figure out ways that we can get along. Now, I am an Enneagram eight, which is the same as Pastor Ben, which is why I think the guy walks on water. I just think he's amazing. Right, But um, um, Enneagram 9 is the challenger. It's this powerful and demanding type. Sometimes they like to get in debates just to stir things up and to get things going. And the reason I tell you this is because I'm actually married to an Enneagram 9, the peacemaker. Oh, Lord Jesus, help us. I like to challenge things. I like to get in debates, and she just likes to keep the peace. Now, I'll tell you, the most irritating thing about her personality is when we play games, she actually doesn't even care if she loses. Do you know how annoying that is? When, you know, you put your heart and soul into winning a game and, and maybe on occasion cheating just to win and then my wife's like, okay, well, congratulations. I was like, oh, 
But this has been something we've had to learn to blend together. And I'm going to tell you, being an Enneagram 8 and just kind of like to take charge and do, throughout our marriage, I've just made a bunch of decisions and she's been compliant and gone along and I've always thought it was good and fine and it worked well. And then two years ago, we ended up in marriage counseling. I'm talking serious, deep marriage counseling. And the therapist said something that was very eye-opening. My wife had told me this numerous times, but it was very eye-opening hearing it from another person. Therapist said, hey, Dave, just because she's compliant, just because she's a peacemaker, just because she goes along with you doesn't mean she doesn't have strong opinions or want to be included in decisions. See, I was just so forceful. I just thought, well, don't. But you know what I stopped doing? I stopped being a student of my wife. I stopped learning her personality and finding ways for us to actually be partners rather than her just follow me whatever I wanted to do. If you want to stay Connected emotionally, you need to become a student of your spouse. And Pastor Ben in week one gave great way, right? Learn the Enneagram, the personality type of your spouse. But let me just add this. I think you need to uh, remind yourself if, if you've gone through this before, and if not, you need to uh, go through it at least one time. Learn the love language of your spouse. Because here's what a love language is, right? You can speak a language and uh, they may not, even though you, you think you're articulating clearly, they may not hear what you're trying to say because they don't speak that language. This would be true of like, you know, regular languages around the world. But in trying to show someone love, you may do something, you're like, I'm doing it because I love you, but that may not be their primary way of receiving love. So they may say it's nice, and they may say it's kind, that was really generous of you to do that, but that may not be their primary way. So the five love languages, this is out of a book Gary Chapman wrote years ago. The five love languages are this. Number one, words of affirmation. This is speaking kind, life-giving, encouraging words. Now, everybody should be good at using words of affirmation. We should all get used to that, but there are some who that's their primary love language. If that's your spouse, you need to learn to speak that. Number two is this, acts of service. This is when we do something for our spouse that we wouldn't normally do. Maybe we take a chore off their plate, but we do something to just simply show them, I love you. And if that's how they receive love, I'm telling you, you can speak words of affirmation all day long, but they're looking for you to do something, an act of service in order to feel that love. Number three is this, receiving gifts. There are some people that just like to receive gifts for no other reason than it says, you thought of me. Number four is this, quality time. This is more than just sitting back and watching Netflix or going to a movie together. This is when we spend time together and we talk and we engage and we go on a walk, but we are together and we're not being interrupted by our cell phone. We're not being interrupted by our kids. That is a true love language. And if that's the love language of your spouse, you need to find ways and put margin in your life to be able to give that to them. And then finally, number five would be this, physical touch. And I'll add a word here, non-sexual physical touch. Right, this is when we show affection by hugging and by hand-holding, but it's saying, you're important to me and you matter to me. And everybody's different. And so you have to discover the love language of your spouse, the personality of their spouse. In order to stay connected, you need to continue to be a student. If we can put down the anchor of emotional connection, it will keep us from drifting. Second anchor is this, verbal connection. This is learning to communicate to our spouse in a way that we both feel appreciated and understood and valued. This is learning how to express our opinions and our philosophies and uh, the things that we're thinking in a very kind and considerate and a loving way so that both people feel like we're being heard and understood. King Solomon of Israel writes this. He says, some people make cutting remarks, but the words of the wise bring healing. When you're in a conversation, I'm not even talking an argument, but when you're in a conversation, 
Do you use loving words and kind words and gracious words and caring words? Because if you don't, it will quickly turn into an argument. It's amazing how many arguments over an issue, and it's an issue that needs to be addressed, turns into an argument with the couple. Right? Can you imagine an intruder breaking into your house in the middle of the night and you and your, your, your spouse both hear it and you get up and then you start fighting with each other because you're like, you left the door open. No, how do you know they didn't go through the window? Well, how do you, you, you start getting in a fight with each other and you're ignoring the issue? That's not a good place to be. You are a team. And as a team, we fight the issue. We don't fight each other. And so we use kind and gracious words. We're, we're, we're thoughtful in, 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 in speaking the truth. But how we speak the truth is a big deal, right? Speaking the truth in love. This is what the Apostle Paul writes uh, in another of his letters. He says, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ. So yeah, you can speak loving and you can speak kind and you can speak in a caring way, but you also at times or in, in every conversation need to also speak the truth. And the hardest part of speaking the truth is literally learning to, to communicate what we actually feel and identify what we feel. Because it's easy for any of us to say, I'm angry. I'm just ticked off. I am livid right now. Well, you may be livid, but maybe what you're really feeling deep down is unappreciated or unheard. Maybe you're feeling helpless or confused or rejected. Mature couples use phrases like this, and I have done everything I can to build this into my marriage. I feel blank when you blank. I feel hurt when you talk to me like that. I feel embarrassed when you tell stories about me to your friends and they laugh at me. I feel happy when you wear that to bed. So whatever the, we just, I feel blank when you blank. And so learning to speak the truth in love requires us to identify our feelings and articulate them. And because this isn't easy for anybody, you know, it'd be easy to say, well, it's not, it's not easy for guys. Come on, this is a human issue. I would encourage you, if you know you need help on this, which you do, to go to Google and type in the words wheel of emotions. And then look in the image search and you're gonna get a, a a wheel like this that will overwhelm you. I printed this out. I had this on my refrigerator for a very long time. It has words like shocked, dismayed, confused, surprised, happy, sad, proud, accepted, powerful. It has got more emotions than I realized were even in our dictionary. But it will help you when you're starting to feel something. Go to, uh, uh, what is that? What is that word? And then you find the word and you say, this is what I'm feeling right now. You want to keep from drifting? Put down emotional connection and put down verbal connection where we're learning to communicate. And then number four, Physical connection. Physical closeness is about affection. We, we reference this in the love languages. It includes anything from hugging to hand-holding to kissing and cuddling. It's saying to your partner, you matter to me, I like you, I'm not embarrassed by you. It also includes intimacy. So if, a if you have a child that you don't want to hear you know, about intimacy, I'm going I'm to be pretty tame today, but this may be a great moment for you to just walk out and get them coffee or water, or a donut, right? So five, four, three, two, one. It includes sex. Sex, 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 all right? So physical closeness requires, again, hand-holding, and it requires, you know, hugging and cuddling, but it also requires sex. And this is why, this is why I'm bringing this up today. Physical connection is the one thing that we have with our spouse that we legitimately should not have with any other person. I, I shouldn't hold hands with another woman in a romantic way. Right? I, I shouldn't be cuddling and hugging another woman. 
I shouldn't be having sex with another woman. This is reserved for just you and your spouse. And if you cannot learn how to do this with each other and, and, and set aside time and be dedicated to each other in this way, you will end up drifting. And one of you will feel uh, starved in, in this way if it's not happening regularly. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, the Apostle Paul, probably the most brilliant thing he ever wrote, says, do not deprive each other of sexual relations. Now, I know this is different for each couple, and, and it's easy to be lighthearted about it, but I can't speak to what that looks like. I, I can't speak to what it looks like to not deprive each other of sexual relations, because that's going to be different for every couple. I do know this. We've got couples in our church who they have sex once or twice a month, or once or twice every six months, or once or twice every year. And I would just say, man, if both of you have come to that agreement, and that, like, mo- most people are going to feel starved in a setting like that. And then you got to start looking at things like testosterone levels and hormone levels and may need to see a doctor. But my guess is if, if, if you're only connecting sexually or physically uh, on a very limited basis, my guess is there's drift happening without you even realizing it. Now, I will speak candidly to the guys, and I'm being very general when I say this, but I think it's important to say. My guess is most guys want to have ongoing, great physical connection. But we have to remind ourselves that can't happen if we haven't first put down the anchor of emotional connection and verbal connection, right? If we're not connected emotionally and we're rarely talking, then it's like, hey, you ready? You want to go to bed early? Right, there's nothing in there. Pastor Ben, I'm sure, has said this before. Men are like microwaves and women are like crockpots. Okay, men, when it comes to sex, it takes seconds to heat them up, right? It doesn't take long to heat up a hot dog. You just go, horrible example. But it doesn't take long to heat something up, right? But with women, it's a crockpot. That means you're speaking words of affirmation early in the morning. That means you're paying attention throughout the day. You're trying to talk. You're trying to connect. You're trying to appreciate and hoping at the end of the day that there's going to be a great meal that has been established because you've been paying attention to one another. Men are microwaves. Women are crockpots. This is why, guys... There could be a day where you're grabbing at your spouse and you're being flirty and she's responding. You're like, this is awesome because you've had the emotional connection and verbal connection taking place. But then you've gone weeks without that and then you go and you want to be grabbing at your spouse and flirty with her. And she's like, get out of my house, you pervert, right now. Leave. And you're like, what just happened? Well, if you don't have emotional connection and verbal connection happening, physical connection isn't going to be the same. But you need all three anchors. I need all three anchors in my relationship to make sure we're not drifting. Five years ago, Christina Aguilera teamed up with two artists to sing a song called Say Something. It's a simple ballad about a lover begging the person they're in a relationship with to engage at some level. So much emotion in the song. It's felt over and over and over in a sentence that is repeated throughout the song by a person who's wanting to save the relationship. You might remember this. The line was this, say something. I'm giving up on you. Say something. Engage at some level. Tell me you care about the us. Tell me you care about this relationship. And I don't know how many of you have longed for your husband or your wife to say something, to try to show up, to connect, to engage in the relationship. I don't know how many of you in this room are close to giving up. But my encouragement to you is to do everything in your power. You can't change your spouse. You can't make your spouse do things, but do everything in your power to put down these anchors in the relationship. And to say, we've drifted, but we're not going to drift any farther. And I'm going to do everything in my ability to connect again with my spouse. There will be days where you wake up and you think the grass is greener on the other side. Just remember, the grass is greener where you water it. So going back to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. 
And regardless of where your relationship is at, I promise you there is hope. I promise you there's hope. You may feel like God's a million miles away, but God is active. When I rented a car this weekend, I got into it and it wouldn't start. And then I went on YouTube to figure out how to start it and I couldn't start it. And for 10 minutes I sat in that car and my emotions were getting pretty high. And my wife's like, settle down, just go ask how to start it. So I finally went inside and said, hey, my car won't start. Can somebody come help me? And they looked at my key and they said, have you ever driven a Ford Fusion Hybrid before? I said, no. They said, the car's probably started and you don't realize it because you don't hear anything. It just lights up. It's ready to go. So I got back in the car, I started it, and I just walked, drove away and I'm like, oh, I didn't even realize it was running. God's active. You might not think he's active. You may not realize he's at work, but he's at work. You just keep being faithful to knowing what you can do, putting down the anchors you're able to. In 23 years, my wife and I have drifted many, many times. But we've constantly humbled ourselves when we realized the drift was there. We've apologized, we've repented, we've surrendered our, our wills to God, said, man, I'm gonna try to honor you, God, and we've come back together. And today, if you were to ask my wife, our marriage is at the healthiest spot it's ever been. Now, don't ask her, but just trust me on this. Our marriage is the healthiest spot it's ever been. Let me pray for you. Thank you for listening to the Timberlake Church Podcast. Stay connected with us by visiting TimberlakeChurch.com or follow us on Twitter or Facebook.